0: com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host,
1: David Barr Kirtley Hello, and welcome to episode 521 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kurtley, author of the book Save Me Please and other stories, which is available now on amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500 so definitely check that out if you missed it. And I want to give a special thank you to Lior Segev, who just gave the book a five-star review on Amazon.com. It says, Such a great read. I bought this book as soon as I found out about it, and loved all the stories in the book. Fun to read, but also thoughtful and beautifully written. Frankly, I'd have bought this book sight unseen just based on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, but since I knew some of the stories, especially the wonderful Save Me Please, I knew I wouldn't be disappointed. David, waiting for your second book. So big thanks again to Leor Segev for that great review. And our guest today is Ben Riggs. He's the co-host of the tabletop gaming podcast Plot Points, and his work has also appeared on Geek & Sundry, in the horror gaming magazine The Unspeakable Oath, and on NPR's To the Best of Our Knowledge. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his new book Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons & Dragons, about the downfall of TSR, one of the most powerful game companies of the 80s and 90s. And now here's our interview with Ben Riggs.
0: All right, so we're here with Ben Riggs. Welcome to the show. Hello, David Barr Kirtley. You have you have no idea how delighted I am uh, at last to be on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, no, that's so, that's so great to hear.
1: Uh, ben and I were talking a little bit before we started recording. So uh, it's nice, uh, nice to have someone who's a,
0: a fan of the show uh, talking to me i have been listening since john joseph adams co-hosted um and it really got me through some dark times so th- th- thank you for what you do it's it's been a delight and i can't i cannot tell you how happy i'm to be here it's literally a bucket list item that i get to cross off today
1: yeah no i'm so happy to hear that and so great to talk to you and yeah we're gonna have a great time today talking about your new book slaying the dragon a secret history of dungeons and dragons so tell us about how this book come
0: about <laughs> Wow. So uh, I used to write for Geek and Sundry. And as you may have noticed, uh, tabletop role playing games have exploded in popularity in the past 10 or 15 years. And my editor at Geek and Sundry one day said to me, hey, you, you live in Wisconsin. Could, would you be so kind as to write an article just explaining that Dungeons and Dragons wasn't always made in Seattle by Wizards of the Coast and it used to be made in Wisconsin huh. by TSR? And I'm like, sure. I'm in Wisconsin. I know some of these guys, mostly guys. Uh, a lot of them remained here after D&D moved to Seattle. So I see them at conventions and hear the stories. And so I, I, I kind of had a social network that allowed me to access their knowledge pretty easily. I go and I start talking to them. And uh, the creatives I talk to uh, allow me to reach out to people that worked in the business side for TSR and, and published Dungeons and Dragons. And what I start to get from the business marketing sales side of the company is a story I'd never heard before. I was confident I knew exactly how and why uh, Dungeons and Dragons used to be made in Wisconsin, but died here and is now published in Seattle. But the story I got from those guys was was not the story I was expecting at all. I thought the story was going to be well, Wizards of the Coast made Magic the Gathering Magic the Gathering is crack in a pack, and you know it, it just sucked all the oxygen out of the room and killed TSR and then they bought TSR That was the story I was expecting. It was not at all the story I was told. The story I was told was one of uh, mismanagement and mistakes and errors and a death by a thousand cuts and and a failure to expand and a failure to find new people to play d and d and as I'm getting all this data, my, my one article for Geek and Sundry becomes three, and even then, uh, uh, Geek and Sundry has had editorial standards that are like, hey, look, you know, we we're light, we're fun, we're like Felicia Day, so you know, you don't want anything too much of a bummer on Geek and Sundry, and uh, one of the pieces of feedback I got back was. The story of the death of this company is a bit of a bummer. We need to trim this, trim this, trim this. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But again, these are things that no one has heard before. And, and that inspired me to kind of keep going after those articles uh, came out. I was like, you know. I'll, I'll write ten thousand words and put it on Kickstarter, and ten thousand words became twenty, which became fifty, uh, which became a hundred, which I then sold to St Martin's Press, uh, and it, it really is a, a shocking tale of of a geek business that that is mismanaged into the ground, uh, and then saved actually by a company perceived as their as their dearest enemy.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, this is actually, this is, if I'm counting right, this is the eighth book that I've read and covered on this podcast about the history of Dungeons and Dragons. And it was really striking to me reading your book that even having read so many other books about the history of Dungeons and Dragons, this is still mostly, this, this book is almost entirely news to me, all the stuff in it. So, um, yeah, you must have felt reading this like you were just uncovering. <laughs> Like the secrets of the universe, or like what was it, that it, like? it
0: certainly felt like a like a, de- a journey. It, it felt like a detective story as uh, as I was doing my research and interviews. Um, and and what happened was just uh, I again I went and talked to the business people. So, so first of all, I, I'm talking about. I should point out um, my book, while it tells the whole story of TSR, really focuses on 1985 to 1997. And John Peterson, who you've had on at least twice, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, He is the the Thucydides of 1974 <laughs> to 1985, um, and his book Game Wizards came out uh, this past fall. I think you had him on for that, didn't yep, you? Yep. Um, and my book picks up very neatly where his leaves off. So if you read Game Wizards and mine, you get this very deep, comprehensive look on the his- at the history of TSR. Uh, but I also, you know, I, if you don't know anything about the history of TSR, I do give you uh, a good summary of that early era, too. So, you know, you can pick up my book. You don't need to, It's not a sequel. You don't need to read another book before you read mine. But if you do read Game Wizards, you have a really cool aesthetic experience. Anyway, um, yeah, the the research on this was like a detective story. Um I would talk to people. They would lead me to other people. Uh, and the number of these people, as far as I know, had never been spoken to before by a journalist about their time at TSR. Uh, there was one guy, Bob Abramowitz. Uh, he negotiated the sale of TSR to Wizards of the Coast, uh, essentially. And I, I found him. Uh, I called him during dinner one day, and he stopped eating dinner to talk to me for 20 Hmm. minutes about the sale of TSR. It was as though he'd been waiting decades for someone to just call him up during dinner. And he's like, ah, this is finally happening. Okay. Let me tell you everything you need to know. Sorry, go ahead. Well,
1: like you say in the book, uh, as I wrote and interviewed, I began to receive secrets, scans of documents from various sources, one of whom insisted on remaining confidential. Is that person still confidential? Yes, they are.
0: They are. and. Source. It's actually a little bit of uh, a little bit controversial at the moment because, um, so I, I got a lot of stuff. People sent me a lot of stuff, uh, from TSR, just primary source documents, crazy lists of salaries, for example. Um, and sales numbers are probably the most interesting thing to people. Um, but the volume of primary source material I got from sources was pretty crazy. Um and a few of them did ask to remain confidential or anonymous and i am I am posting on Twitter and Facebook right now actual d and d sales numbers from the seventies eighties and nineties very briefly in the seventies mostly eighties and nineties and the the number one question people are having is what's your source what's your source what's your source and I'm like, well, my source is anonymous um if you're like doubtful of of the truth of that probably the the Best evidence I have that this is actual data uh, from a source that wants to remain confidential is A, I don't have everything. Like, people are like, Well, do you have novel numbers? And I'm like, Almost no novel numbers. I have almost no DD novel sales. Two, I have almost no DD adventure sales because my sources just didn't give them to me. Uh, but because over the course of years, I just got known as the guy to, to talk to about TSR and D and D and and the failure of the company in the nineties, people started sending me more stuff. So I actually have primary sources, uh, primary source documents from more than one source. Uh, so I can cross confirm the data and my, my source that wants to remain confidential. I've managed to cross check things and the data is good. I, so Peter Adkison was the CEO of wizards of the coast that, when Wizards of the Coast purchased TSR. While he was in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, negotiating the sale of TSR, he had a prep binder with him, said TSR on the side, was filled with his notes, documents, uh, letters from people asking for jobs, sales numbers. It had a breakdown of the problems that he saw at TSR while he was there. And at some point, he left it in Lake Geneva, and a TSR employee. Picked it up, held it for 25 years, <laughs> and then sent it to me. And that 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 document right there allows me to confirm things from my anonymous confidential source. Because I'm like, well, if if this if the source is giving me the same numbers that Peter Atkison had, clearly the source is good. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, I've been told by multiple people that I'm going to get sued for this book. I've been told I'll be sued into the ground. And I should tremble with fear for having published it. Uh, the the primary reason for that, I think is because uh, one of the main personages I follow in this is Lorraine Williams, who was the CEO of TSR from 85 until 97. And she was, it was, and I believe is very litigious. And she did not want to talk to me for this book. She told me she had nothing to say to me, um, which is unfortunate because I, I think I, I go out of my way to be fair to her on this. Um, and I'd say that up until now, people have been kind of cruel to her. Um, so it's too bad she didn't talk to me. But my sort and the fear of her seems to extend uh, beyond TSR and beyond the decades to to right <laughs> now, where people are still so afraid of her that they they want to remain confidential. Um, is the, was that a good summary of the yeah. uh, of of the, of the that's, story that's for actually
1: you? that's a lot juicier than i than I realized it was going to be yeah um but I, I definitely think that I had a much more positive view of Lorraine from reading your book than uh you know i i i i I feel like this book is you know among the most uh respectful treatments she's likely to get I mean you say she's sort of been painted as a villain in the um You know, in in the Dungeons and Dragons community, and and it seems like she had a lot of—I mean, she certainly made a lot of mistakes, as your book makes clear—and had a lot of personality flaws and stuff. But uh, you you give her credit for a lot of things that um, you know, I think a lot of other people maybe had not uh, uh hadn't done.
0: Yeah, by by no means is she perfect. Um, but you know, she saved the company in 1985, and and again, this is something. That uh John Peterson really brought to light with his research, and especially in Game Wizards. Um, the company was was by no means in good health when Gary Gygax kind of swung back into the picture in 1985, Gary Gygax being the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons and co-founder of TSR, a company he essentially uh founded to publish Dungeons and Dragons. Um he had been out of the picture for a few years in Los Angeles, which is its own sordid tale. Hmm. Uh, but uh he actually came- I, don't, I don't want to dwell on that too much but That's i actually fine. love i loved this line
1: where because gary gygax was a jehovah's witness and um and he, so he's out in hollywood living this sort of rock star life with <laughs> you know playboy models and all this hot tubs and all this kind of stuff and someone who was around at the time says uh i, I feel so something like
0: um I, I think jehovah must have been looking in a completely different direction yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was said by by Flint Dilley, uh a G.I. Joe and Transformers writer. He he claims to be the only person ever hired by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg to write, uh, because he wrote for George Lucas on the droid and droids and ewoks cartoons, and he wrote American Tale 2, Five will goes west for Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but also, by coincidence, the brother of CEO Lorraine Williams. He he was happy to talk to me for this book and, and very kind with his time and commentary. And He is a character. I, I really enjoy talking to him. Uh, but yeah, he said that Jehovah was looking in a whole different <laughs> direction when Gygax was in Los Angeles. Um, but in a lot of the, the prior histories before Peterson came along – there was this idea that like Gygax had swo- swo- swooped back in. He was back in Lake Geneva. He was writing again and everything was going to be fine. And then Lorraine Williams comes in and, and steals the company away from Gary Gygax. But that, that, that projected future of salvation by Gygax is by no means assured. Uh, m- the employees at TSR were on pay deferments at the time. Uh, the company owed a bunch of money. And that is when Lorraine Williams took over. Um, and uh, people who work there, I I had people tell me that if you worked under Gygax and you worked under Williams for all the respect people had for Gygax, nobody preferred working under him. They preferred working under Lorraine Williams. Uh, once she took over, she got people paid off uh, that all the money that was owed to them was paid back with interest within, within a year of her taking over the company. Um, And while a lot of the decisions that she made, uh, contributed to the long-term decline of the brand, uh, her time in charge of TSR was clearly D&D's silver age. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me that, that, uh, Wizards of the Coast, for example, the default setting of D&D right now is Forgotten Realms, which came out when Lorraine Williams was CEO. Uh, This summer, they're releasing a Spelljammer supplement, which is D&D in space, Hmm. and that debuted under Lorraine Williams. Um, You really saw just (laughs) amazing product after amazing product come out of TSR, gorgeous box sets, uh, these – books with leatherette covers and gold embossed sides. And of course, one of the problems there is they weren't so good at keeping track of their profit and losses. So a lot of these things either made no money or actually lost money. For Dragon Dark Sun Adventures, for example, for the first year, uh, every Dark Sun Adventure that came out lost them like a buck per product. So they go through all this trouble to, to make Dark Sun and make adventures for it, and they ended up losing hundreds of thousands of dollars.
1: Well, right. And so my era of Dungeons and Dragons was really this, this era, the ah. Williams second edition era. And I, I can remember like the first time I saw Dungeons and Dragons, the first time I saw the Dungeons and Dragons second edition book, you know, I was at summer camp and the, there were these older kids playing it and i just saw that the player's handbook with the guy on the horse and the sword riding toward the the viewer the, i think it's a jeff easley um painting <sighs> and, I, and i was just like that is the coolest thing i've ever seen and and all those books looked so amazing and you know my my cousin who's i don't know maybe 10 years older than i than i am he had um all the first edition books so i would see those when i went over to their house in boston and they looked by comparison very um sort of amateurish you know in the layout and the the art and stuff and so I, I never would have imagined that that as you as you say in the book that the second e- edition from a commercial standpoint was kind of a you know kind of a bust uh, or so, or
0: so. yeah I mean, I mean one of the really interesting things when you look at the sales numbers is uh, you could argue that that basic d and d so again for, if, if you if you don't know uh, in the late 70s early eighties what we call Dungeons and dragons was kind of split into you had Uh, basic Dungeons and Dragons. Which was kind of considered a, a more simple beginner's game. Every few years, you'd have a box set come out with this for this simpler game, um, and then you had Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which was kind, Gary Gygax's kind of magnum opus. It was an attempt by him to have rules for everything. <laughs> 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 um, th- there, there are rules in in first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons for how chances to hit are affected by what hand you carry your shield in uh, and the size of the shield. Again, it it, it really is him trying to get the rules around the entire world and, and shove the world into his game. And, and in that way it is uh, a magnificent work, but you had this simpler game called, you know, basic dungeons and dragons. It came in boxes. Um, and, uh, the basic D&D outsold first edition and it outsold second edition. Second edition did not sell as well as first, uh, which again, b- being like you being a child of the nineties who grew up looking at those magnificent Jeff Easley paintings on the front of the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide. Um, I of course thought that this was the apex of, hmm. of D&D. This yeah. is, this is, it has achieved its final form. Um, But if you look at sales numbers, uh, it it signified a decline. Uh, And that is the problem that really bedeviled uh, TSR and D&D during the Lorraine Williams era was declining sales, declining sales, declining sales. Second edition didn't do as well as first edition. Uh, When they started releasing, uh, they started releasing a ton of settings. And they would revise the settings every few years. Revised settings never sold as well as their prior editions. Uh, if you look at charts of products, uh it's always like a, a big number in the first year and then just a collapse. The products had almost no legs and they certainly never sold more the second year. If you looked at uh, sales charts from the early 1980s, there was exponential growth uh, until 1984 when there was also a collapse. Um I actually sent D&D sales numbers to an economist to try and figure out why there's this collapse in 1984. Uh, And the economist tells me, well, I'll look at the numbers, but right off the top of my head, um, you know, a recession ended in 1984. And I was like, yeah, why would that have been bad for D&D sales numbers? And the economist says to me, well, you know, D&D and entertainment in general is something that you can spend on even in bad economic times. Uh, but when economic times are good, maybe people are a working, b spending that money going on vacations or something. They have more disposable income, and they don't feel like they have to spend it on Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's an interesting theory. Um, well, I mean, that that could be. But
1: uh, you also just bring up the idea in the book of market saturation that you know, like there's a certain number of people who wanted a who wanted to play Dungeons and Dra- Dungeons and Dragons, and once they had some version of the game, they could play it. And then do they really need the tenth
0: yeah. <laughs> setting to come out, you know? Yeah, one of the innovations and problems of role-playing games is they, they don't expire, they don't go bad, they don't start to rot, you don't consume them. Um, you know, there there are people who could who are probably still happily playing first edition Dungeons and Dragons and have been for decades. So if you're in an environment where you don't have to pur- make a purchase again from TSR, how does TSR survive, or any role-playing game company for that matter? Uh, one of the interesting things I find is uh, successful role-playing game companies that last a long time tend to sell more than role-playing games, like TSR. Uh, at one point, they claimed to be the largest publisher of fantasy fiction in North America. Uh, they claimed that there were millions of Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance novels in print. There was a point in the 90s where uh, the TSR fiction line was grossing about as much as the TSR, all the TSR role-playing game stuff put together. Um And the fiction line was essentially like helping to keep the company afloat. Fiction was perceived as so successful within the company that there were rumors that one day uh, everyone would come into work and they would no longer be making a game called Dungeons and Dragons. They would only be making novels set in the worlds of Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, all the game designers would now be writers. All the game editors would now be fiction editors and that would be TSR going forward. Um, I rambled off the reservation.
1: Well, well, let me ask because this is the thing I'm. I'm still a little confused about is that I can understand why the company was sort of under under Gary Gygax and these guys who were all hardcore hardcore gamers and not necessarily business people. How they would not be paying that much attention to the bottom line. But Lorraine Williams, as far as I can tell, was basically a business person. She wasn't a gamer. She sort of seems to have disdained gamers and the game the hobby game industry so i'm a little confused about why someone like that would be making such basic business errors as not realizing that you're selling products for more than uh, more than uh that they're, they're costing you more to produce than you're selling them for like that just seems like really basic stuff
0: you you are now rubbing against uh the thing that if, if i found myself in an elevator with lorraine williams i would ask her first um because she presents herself as a businesswoman. Um, but if I recall, she, she got her bachelor's in like, uh, pre, pre communist Russian history. Um, she'd worked at some nonprofits and some hospitals. Um, but you know, she'd never owned a business. She'd never run a business and she really liked yes men. She didn't like to hear the word no. um, And she would, that would affect your employment if you said, you know, no too many times as I understand it. Um, And a lot of the business people she brought on were, you know, like cardboard executives, you know, not people that were from the world, the creative world. Um, And, part of me wants to know, uh, so, so, car- by ahead. cardboard,
1: by cardboard executives, you mean like they sold card. They were all <laughs> yes. manufacturing cardboard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're from a, from a formerly cardboard manufacturing company. And now okay. they're working at TSR, you know, and again, you did, you did get this bizarre clash of cultures where an executive might come down to the art department and tell some genius artist, this is an important painting. We want you to use all your colors, you know, mm-hmm. like just crazy stuff like that. Um, But uh, how much was incompetence? How much was culture? How much did Lorraine Williams really know? Is it that because people were afraid to give her bad news, they wouldn't give her bad news? Um, There certainly are a a number of bad decisions that I can trace right back to her. Um, But I would love to know if, like, the, the extent of the debt to Random House, for example, if she was fully cognizant of that at all times.
1: Well, um, let's, 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 let's talk about that because you say in the book, uh, the 1979 contract between TSR and Random House was my white whale while writing this book. So
0: talk about that. So TSR had a very unusual arrangement with Random House, their uh, distributor to the book trade. According to uh, that contract, uh, which was written in 79 and went to effect in 1980, signed by Gary Gygax, TSR would not receive money from Random House when their product sold. Most of the time, you know, publishers uh, publish a book. They send it to their distributor. When the distributor then sells the book on to Walden Books, B. Dalton, uh, Barnes & Noble, what have you, uh, then the publisher gets paid. TSR was paid. When their product shipped to Random House, not when their product sold. Therefore, for TSR, the printing of product became akin to the printing of money. Now, there were good reasons for this initially. The, the problem was Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> was a titanic hit. And TSR's books were not cheap. Again, they're hardcover with uh, color covers. And, uh, you know, printing those books co- cost money. If TSR found themselves in a position where, like, they needed to reprint the player's handbook, and they also had, uh, a, a hot new adventure coming up that they'd planned to publish, but they only had a certain amount of money on hand, they might need to choose between reprinting a hot product and continuing forward with their catalog. Um, this arrangement with Random House allowed them to do both. They got their money really quickly upfront uh, and they could publish both that adventure and reprint the player's handbook and continue with their momentum. Um, as long as they only got about 20% of their product returned, everything was fine. Uh, the problem was that sometime in the nineties, it seems like a random house just kind of stopped keeping track of how much uh, TSR product was accumulating in their warehouses. And B TSR started to abuse that Random House contract simply to meet their uh, bottom line uh, expectations, needs, to pay their bills. There we go.
1: Yeah. So, so basically shipping out product that they knew wouldn't
0: sell. Exactly. So that Random House would pay them for it. Exactly. They were shipping out product that uh, they did not think would sell just to generate that payment from Random House. And you get this bubble of debt that grows and grows and grows and gets to $11 million. And Random House uh, eventually sues TSR over the matter uh, twice, as I recall. Yeah, yeah,
1: and, and actually, let me—I don't know if we explained this clearly about the different campaign settings because they were employing something called that you call the fish bait strategy, which is basically. When you're fishing, you have different kinds of bait to catch different yeah. kinds of fish, and so yeah. the more kinds of bait you put out there, the more fish you're going to catch. And so they're like, okay, we're going to put out all these different settings, and we're going to attract a different audience, a, a new different audience for each one. So like, we're going to put out Dark Sun, and it's going to attract a whole new group of people who think Dark Sun is cool, and we're going to put out Planescape, and we're going to attract a whole new group of people who think Planescape is cool.
0: Exactly. That that, that, that was that the was, strat- That was the theory. Yeah, right? the theory was. That, hey, we are going to, exactly like you said, uh, I'll use Ravenloft because I feel like it's, it's a really different and obvious example. So Ravenloft was their gothic horror setting. And the theory was that by creating a gothic horror setting for the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition game, we will acquire gothic horror, gothic horror fans who will then become D&D fans and we will grow the brand um and i want to say uh, ravenloft sold 50,000 copies their first year it's first year out and you look at those numbers and you're like oh well oh, 50,000 is a is a pretty big number um you know if if you can get uh 50,000 new people playing dungeons and dragons by generating a gothic horror setting this seems like a good plan but it was not 50,000 new people buying that setting it it turns out it was mostly people that were already playing Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition. And they were not, in fact, finding new fans. They were just taking their existing fan base and chopping it up. And every setting would be another chop. And you would suddenly have people go from buying, you know, 200,000 copies of Forgotten Realms uh, to, man, I want to say the last Forgotten Realms uh Release sold 30,000 copies its first year. Um, And every setting seemed to take their sales and cut them and cut them and cut them. In the next 48 hours, I'm actually going to put a graph up on Twitter and Facebook. So if you're hearing this, it's probably up there already. Showing all of TSR's settings and their sales over time. And you will see that you go from Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, which had really, really good sales to really anemic sales the last few years of TSR's existence. You know, you, you had debuts go from 200,000 units sold to 30,000, 15,000 units sold the last couple of years. Um, and yet, a th- when I was talking about this, a thing that I would hear from TSR alumni was, But, you know, TSR's bottom line was around $30 million for years and years and years and years and years. And and they're right about that. TSR's gross sales were about $30 million for years and years and years and years and years. But over time, what they're having to do is produce more product to earn that $30 million. I want to say in uh, like 88 or 89, there were like two setting releases. Uh, By 95, 96, you're having dozens. Um, And you you go from again selling like hundreds of thousands of copies of those two releases to tens to 20,000 copies of those releases in the 90s um so you're having to spend more money to get, to keep generating uh the same bottom line and when you're not keeping a close eye on your profits and losses and some of those just break even some of those actually lose you money um it's why, you know, TSR really suffered a death of a thousand cuts. And the fish bait strategy being a failure wasn't noticed until years after TSR was dead. Um, Lisa Stevens, who is now the publisher of Paizo, uh, which makes the Pathfinder role playing game. It fell to her to do the dissection on the body of TSR. And she starts pouring over their sales numbers. And that's when she figures out, man the the more settings you have the less good every setting does um and i i don't think it's coincidence that the the woman who figured that out about tsr uh and was so deep in tsr numbers goes on to found her own publishing company which seems to be incredibly successful um and yet if you if you look at the setting though the Pathfinder role playing game has one setting. Hmm. It is called Galarian. There's a bunch of different kingdoms. Like there's a Gothic horror kingdom, uh, and there's a like kingdom of atheists. But you know what? It's one planet, and that is it. <laughs> well,
1: and this 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 pains me a lot because like Dark Sun was the setting I was most into, and I thought Dark Sun was so cool. So it's kind of uh, disheartening to see that it was actually part of the reason TSR failed was was producing such amazingly cool stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Well, and I do want to point out that I, the quality, um, is, uh, not related to the sales numbers. And it, it's one of the reasons that it really is a, a silver age of D and D. Um, and in some ways, you and I directly benefited from the, from the bad business practices at TSR because a lot of those box sets should have been priced higher. Uh, and they weren't for, for either mistakes or various and, and uh, or, Sometimes they just wanted to try and attract new people. So they tried to lower the price point. Um, but you and I probably had our adolescences subsidized by learning <laughs> Williams. Um, this really
1: a charitable uh, operation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, I want to point out when I'm t- – and some people do see these lower sales numbers and they're like, oh, that must have sucked. Oh, that, that must have been a failure. But like Planescape, I think, was their greatest setting. It uh, was – you know, took place in a city at the center of the universe. There's all these factions. It was like their response to the, to the rise of the white wolf games, which all had these factions that were fighting amongst each other. Um, there's a like, you know, goddess figure looming over everything called the queen of pain. And it's super cool. There was just like two artists for the entire line. And yet the, the whole line never made any money, even though it's an artistic high point for the company. And maybe even for the brand of dungeons and dragons, Didn't make any money. Sales weren't great. Um, And uh, again, so I do want to make the point of separating sales from quality because they by no means do they track. And I think, again, I think a lot of these settings, there's a reason that you still have uh, old hands like us demanding to see these settings released in fifth edition. Um, and it's because they were so great and so fantastic I, I, that when Spelljammer came out, you know, I feel like there was a cry from the internet of, of, of uh, ecstasy when the Ravenloft fifth edition rules came out, everyone was super excited. Hmm. Um, so I do want to just take a m- moment to point out that, but yeah. please continue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and another thing that really blew my mind is, you know, cause I, I was really into the Dragonlance and forgotten realms novels growing up and just seeing how, how tight the deadlines were on some of these things. So you say uh, Weiss and Hickman were given three months to write the first Dragonlance novel. Uh, R.A. Salvatore wrote his first Forgotten Realms novel in two months and the first hardcover D&D book in six weeks. And this is a novel, I guess, but Jim Ward was given 10 weeks to develop the rules for Spellfire, which was TSR's uh, answer to um, Magic the Gathering. And it's just like, this is an insanely short amount of time to write a novel or especially to develop a collectible card game, which you would think would need a lot of testing uh, to make <laughs> it good.
0: Yeah, that, that is accurate. Um, and uh, with, with Spellfire for sure, and I assume a few of these other things, um, the problem was something called factoring. Uh, factoring is a financial instrument where... Uh, you try to collect pre-sales in January. So you you tell uh, distributors and retailers, hey, this is what TSR is going to produce this year. In November, we're going to produce an R.A. Salvatore novel. In June, we're going to produce Spellfire, this collectible card game. It's going to blow your mind. Um, And you then have these retailers and distributors sign contracts agreeing to buy these things. Uh, They get a discounted price for pre-ordering in January. Uh, TSR would then take those contracts and sell them to a bank. And the bank, of course, would take another cut. I want to say all of this cost uh, TSR something like 18% on their products. I'm I'm, I'm not good at pulling numbers out, but something like 18% is what it cost TSR. The reason that they would do this is because it gave them a lump sum at the beginning of the year for budgetary purposes. So you don't need to wait to get your money. You get it now. Uh, but A, you lose 18%. B, uh, you now have contractually obligated yourself to produce said product at said time or else. It made TSR incredibly inflexible. Um, it couldn't give, you know, Bob, uh, Bob Salvatore more time because if it did, it would be in contractual violation. Uh, and same with Spellfire, like you couldn't take more time to make the product because if you did, you'd be in contractual violation. And this is going to be a, a real problem because it means that TSR can no longer uh, react with any degree of alacrity or fleetness to changes in the market. Yeah. So, so there's all these, there's all these problems with,
1: uh, with TSR and even many we haven't even gone into. So, so I'm reading the book and I'm like, you know, it just gets worse and worse and worse. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like one of these like cartoons or movies or something where somebody tells one little lie at the beginning and then they have to tell a lie to cover that up and another lie to cover that up. And by the end, it's like this huge thing. But, but then, um, uh, Peter Atkinson comes in at the end, and it's almost like, in storytelling terms, it was almost to me like a Deus Ex Machina. It's like, you know, like like TSR is like everything's ruined, and then this guy like swoops in and saves Dungeons and Dragons, and he's just like super, you know, he's got all this money, and he's just wants seems seemingly just wants the best for the game and for everybody involved and everything. And it was like, you know, if you were making this story up, you would be like, okay, this is too cheer, you know, too sort of falsely (laughs) cheerful
0: of an ending. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. And a lot of the creatives, uh, that I talk to refer to, to, to Peter Adkison in kind of hushed tones. Um, he, he really came in and <sighs> cut through a lot of the BS, uh, and just made things right in simple things. Um, like as far as I know, no TSR fiction author ever had their name appear on the spine of a book while Lorraine Williams was uh, CEO. And the idea was, oh, if we put the author's name on the side of the book, we're building that author's brand. And TSR was very wary of of building an author's brand because, you know, Weiss and Hickman, man, they got big and they just ran off uh was TSR's point of view. Bob Salvatore, oh he he was a huge success, and then he just ran off. Now, in fact, they kind of got pushed. Yeah would I would say run that, off. <laughs> that is that is much more accurate to say they were pushed away than than ran off. But from TSR's point of view, yeah. um and uh but again for a lot of these fiction authors that's really wounding. You know they spend a year maybe writing a novel. It comes out and on the side doesn't even have their name. Um you know real books have the authors' names on the side uh and that's a thing that you know Peter Atkinson is very easily able to fix um and it does help that like magic magic the gathering was making so much money that when wizards came in to buy tsr they didn't even need to go to the bank for a loan they could pay out of it out of their pay for pay the 30 million dollars for tsr out of their cash flow um and and money solves tons of problems like uh to to clear up uh, concerns about the D&D intellectual property. Uh Wizards of the Coast is going to write checks to uh D&D co-creator Gary Gygax, uh D&D co-creator Dave Arneson, even to one of Gary's ex-wives that somehow acquired a stake in the IP of D&D through the divorce. Um and they all get checks from Wizards and Wizards now free and clear owns the D&D intellectual property. Boom. So, so for, for the people you mentioned at the
1: beginning who, like, they need, they've never heard of TSR. They thought that Wizards of the Coast has always made Dungeons and Dragons. What do you think that people like that should, should know about this history or should take away from this story? Like, why, why should people, um, be interested in, in TSR and, and what lessons should they take away from this whole story?
0: Um, I, I think, first of all, uh, it's just a good tale. Um, I I didn't, it it kept me engaged for a half decade. (laughs) Um, And I I guess that's not a takeaway, but uh, reviewers have described it as dishy and novelistic. Um, So the first thing I would say is, again, I I think it's just a rip roaring, enjoyable history. Uh, Two, I think the thing that you would take away from it is, um, that the role-playing game business is a difficult business, um, but that role-playing games are a delightful and, nat- and radical new medium. Um, and we have not really absorbed the challenges presented to us by role-playing games yet as a culture. We're still co- we're, we're, we're going through the process of, processes of it right now. But one of those challenges is the economics of the matter. You know, if you're going to make a role-playing game which is good forever and you could play for decades, how are the economics of that going to allow for the existence of role-playing game creators? Because we can certainly agree that role-playing games are, are something worthy of being created. Um, but how are we going to make sure that the people who create them uh, get a decent living? Yeah, because the thing I
1: always when I was a kid playing Dungeons and Dragons, the thing I always wondered was like, you know, w- when there was like, you know, the complete fighters handbook and the complete thief's handbook and all these things. I was like, is there anyone? Am I just dumb? Or is like, is there anyone on Earth who can actually remember and implement 50 books worth of rules into a game? And it seems like the answer is basically no, that that it was just sort of driven by the economics more than this makes the game more playable or more fun or something.
0: That That is very fair to say about the nineties. Um, Steve winter was, uh, I want to say the chief, uh, I think he was the D and D brand manager at one point. I think that was his title. And every year they'd sit down and they'd be like, well, what are we going to publish this year? Cause we need to publish something cause we have a company. Um, mm-hmm. and, That is where a lot of those things came from. Like, you know, you you had the complete fighter's handbook, the complete L's handbook. It's like, okay, we're going to just do splat book, splat book, splat book. You know, dive down on this character or this race. Uh, And a lot of those actually sold pretty well. Um, And then they got so far as to publish uh, what designers called really advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which were the (laughs) characters and option. No, skills and power. Oh, I'm doing this wrong. I think character and option line of books. It was three more hardcover books giving you just more rules to go with second edition. And uh, they had one on magic, one for fighters, and I think one was called character options. I'd have to go look. Uh, but they'd originally only planned to do two of them, but they sold so well, they did a third. Um, and uh, a lot of that... I, just, I,
1: I bought them all, so I understand there you are. people would buy them, but I could never actually... Use you know yeah. you never actually remember all those rules or anything.
0: Yeah, and again, it, it was just the economic imperative of well, we got this role playing game company, we got to publish something. Let's go. So,
1: so you say so? So wizards, they solved that problem somehow of like, why do we really need more Dungeons and Dragons books?
0: Or... Oh, you know, th- this is where it gets a little difficult. Um, so wizards, for the first few years, just didn't put out a bunch of ro- a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons material. Uh sorry, for fifth edition, I should say for fifth edition, they didn't put out a bunch of uh role playing game material um actually, should I talk about third edition or fifth edition well did they when did they solve the problem in in your opinion so i I would say that they have they may have solved the problem with fifth edition um the most recent edition of Dungeons... so the third and fourth kind of followed the t s r model of we're gonna have a bunch of worlds and we're gonna have uh, you know uh, a bunch of books for people to buy fifth edition has had the fewest number of books published for it of any edition of dungeons and dragons perhaps ever it have to compare to first but i'm pretty confident that fifth edition has less than second third or fourth in just terms of the numbers of books uh published
1: when it seems like dnd has become so popular that maybe you don't you know, there are enough people buying just the player's handbook and so on that you don't need 80 different books to to keep the company going.
0: You know, I... I <laughs> this is where I need somebody at uh, at Wizards of the Coast to start being like, I'll start sending you sales numbers surreptitiously. <laughs> you know. And I haven't had that yet. Like, I'm um, trying to... Th- like, the only... D&D statistic from Wizards of the Coast that occurs to me right now is they claim that over 50 million people have experienced Dungeons and Dragons and they claimed that last year. I would say that before 1999 there were like 2 million people that had experienced Dungeons and Dragons. Even if you think that Wizards of the Coast number is uh off by a huge factor if it's if it's 25 million actually and they doubled it that's still exponential growth in D and D players. Most of it happening during fifth edition and a lot of it moving into, you know, again, it's not old people like us. Are we old? David is 40s old. Um, It's not old people like us just playing uh, D and D again. I'm a teacher by day this year in, in autumn, in the autumn of 2021, I walked into the teacher's lounge, and it was nothing but women under 30 talking about their D&D campaigns. That is all that was going on in the (laughs) teacher's lounge, which, uh, again, is is a real earthquake to me. The fact that you had, uh, again, not just white dudes playing D&D. So I think that clearly... Wizards is doing a good job with brand management. You could argue that they're just fortunate that Critical Role happened during 5th edition. Um, And you could argue that they're benefiting from the online actual play movement. But uh, as I recall... This is is podcasts of people playing Dungeons & Dragons, in case anyone doesn't know what that is. Yeah. Um, And again, if you don't know Critical Role, it's voice actors playing D&D on YouTube and also podcasts. Um. That may be the secret sauce. But my recollection is that Critical Role came after 5th edition. So you could argue that the strong rule set set the basis for that movement. Um, but no, I, I do not have the kind of sources or insight right now to really speak with confidence as to what's going on. Well, Because um,
1: I saw you're working on a, on a book now about the 3rd edition era, right? So is that – I would imagine it's less juicy or like, what is
0: the, how much drama <laughs> is there in the third edition era? So let me tell you, David, I thought that I was going to tag third edition on as like a chapter of this book. I thought that this chapter was going to be, I talked to everyone who made third edition and they all said it was a huge hit and everybody was a genius. <laughs> um, But in it must have been just the right amount of time. Because people were like, "I'm going to tell you the truth. I am going to tell you about how there was backstabbing and betrayal and 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 lies in the creation of Third Edition Dungeons and Dragons, and how you know uh, it was contentious." And, you know, like the, the, the TSR people that moved to Seattle didn't super fit in well with the wizards people. And there was like this inner house rivalry between the TSR people and the wizards people. And, you know, Peter Adkison wanted to be in charge of third edition. And what does he know? He's just some bean counter, you know, and, and, uh, it, it, I think I wrote 20,000 words <laughs> on third edition because, uh, I, I, I just started exploring the story. And again, instead of we were successful geniuses, I got let me tell you the truth about Bob, Ugh, that guy, <laughs> uh, the things he did. And I, w- I would say it's the seed of a second book. I don't really I- I'm still I'm still right now. I'm just busy marketing this one. Um, but that story is so interesting and kind of the next step in Dungeons and Dragons tale re- it really is. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, there's something called the open gaming license. The open gaming license says, hey, um, you can make D&D books, adventures, rules, and sell them on your own. You don't need to pay the Wizards of the Coast any money. Now, There's a a few boundaries to that. Like, you can't take their core characters. There's a few monsters you can't use. But it's most of D&D. And uh, that seemed to fuel an explosion of D&D with 3rd Edition. Um, it seemed to fuel a rivalry with D and D and fourth edition. And now it seems to be helping again with fifth edition. And I feel like that might be the focus of the next book is, you know, what happens if you give away your intellectual property? Like what if Disney one day was like, anyone can make a star Wars movie. Like what would happen to Disney and star Wars? Cause that's functionally what's happened with dungeons and dragons. And it is a, a mixed bag. Um, if you stop this story and like, 2008 2009. It looks like one of the dumbest things ever done because it looks like D and D fueled the rise of its rival in a game called Pathfinder, which is basically an older version of D and D that people still liked when they didn't want to make the switch to fourth edition. But now that fifth edition is here again, it's a much more complicated tale. Paizo might be struggling. They have a second edition of Pathfinder. I'm not sure that people are transitioning over to that. Fifth edition is really strong. So that, that might be the focus of a second volume is what happens to a company that just gives away its intellectual property?
1: That's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's not just all everyone getting along because that makes it uh, <laughs> more fun for us. So. It is
0: okay, like, wh- OK, so one designer, I know he told me this on the record, I can just use his name, legendary role playing game designer, Monty Cook who is one of the co-designers of third edition Dungeons and Dragons and now has his own game company where he, uh, he publishes a game probably most famous for Numenera. Um, he described going to a Wizards of the Coast barbecue and it's not like official, an official company barbecue, but it's Wizards of the Coast people inviting TSR people. And apparently, um, the Wizards of the Coast people would like play test games at these parties. And there's some game that's, it's a card game that involves slapping cards down on the table or something. And all the Wizards of the Coast people have played this before. So they all beat the TSR people. And when they're, when they're doing it they're they're slapping these cards down they the monty cook said he just felt humiliation he felt like the the wizards people were just purposely humiliating them and rubbing the failure of the tsr people in their faces and it was slapping them harder than they really had exactly this embittering experience of being defeated in this kind of physical game that was about more than just uh, (laughs) uh play testing and you know that that that's that's juicy stuff. That's the stuff of drama right there, you know? Um, so I, I, I am, I'm working on that and hoping to dive down into it some more. Okay. Awesome. And then I guess probably
1: maybe the last thing I wanted to ask you is do th- you live in Wisconsin? And so I was just curious if you have visited Lake Geneva and can you go around and look at all like Gary Gygax's house and all these, like where the dungeon hobby shop was, is, is all that like, to what extent is that still there? And is it good to go do a little pilgrimage?
0: So, uh, GaryCon is certainly worth a trip. GaryCon is the gaming convention uh, that follows the anniversary of Gary Gygax's death. Uh, when Gary Gygax died after his funeral, everybody uh, from the funeral went to the uh, the Horticultural Hall in Lake Geneva, which is where the first Gen Con took place. And they they played a bunch of games there. And everybody was like, that was so fun. We should come back again next year and do it again. And it involved it evolved into a gaming convention, and that is very much worth a trip to Lake Geneva because it attracts a lot of A-list role-playing game talent. But it's a—I'm going to say it's like less than five thousand people. But it's a, a smallish convention, so you really get an intimate experience. And coming here for that, and going to downtown Lake Geneva and seeing where the first TSR offices were. Seeing where the dungeon hobby shop was. You can still get, you know, Gary Gygax, uh, his widow still lives in his house. Um, not the same house he designed Dungeons and Dragons in, but, you know, he has a different house. Um, and you can still go to all the places. I would certainly tell you though, Lake Geneva has not really leaned into, uh, their history as the birthplace of tabletop role playing games. Um, and again, initially they viewed TSR as, you know, the weird long hairs. Um, and, you know, by 23 years later, it's gone. And now the fact that people feel so strongly about it that they want to come to Lake Geneva and and see where these things happened hasn't quite dawned on the, the city elders of Lake Geneva yet. I certainly think within 50 years, you're going to see a lot of these properties, you know, uh, bought up. And restored to some degree, Um, like right now, the the uh, location of the original dungeon hobby shop is a Killwinds ice cream shop, which, you know, fine, you can go and get an ice cream and be like, oh, yes, it all happened here. Uh, But man, I I certainly think if you were able to get a role playing game store in that location, uh, it would do very, very well. Maybe I'm wrong. Lake Geneva is a tourist town, and this certainly seems like it would attract people from Chicago. Like, there's a, a rail line that goes right from Chicago to Lake Geneva, so it's yeah, a it missed like they opportunity should have right a now.
1: statue of a dragon or a giant 20-sided die or something in the, in the park or something. Yeah, like
0: right, right now there's just, I want to say, a a uh, D20 plaque in a park. Oh, there, was right. su- well, there was supposed to be a statue. It is currently mired in litigation, as I understand it.
1: Between... Who and who?
0: I want to say it's Gary Gygax's widow, and I forget who else. But the, there was a like, you know, Gary Gygax statue fund. The statue has not been built.
1: uh actually, well, hopefully, hopefully someday. Yeah um all right cool so well uh, we're pretty much out of time so do you have like kind of like what's been going on with the book like what what's ahead for the book do you have any other final thoughts or anything like that
0: <laughs> so first of all i would say uh, p- please go buy my book it's slaying the dragon a secret history of dungeons and dragons by me it's available everywhere uh anywhere you- please buy it from your uh either local gaming store because some gaming stores are carrying it uh or from your local indie bookstore if you have one near you um because it just helps support the publishing industry better that way. Um, Other than that, I am also on Twitter and Facebook posting D&D sales numbers right now. Like uh, every day I'm posting. A lot of, a lot of, yeah, I've
1: seen seen a lot of sales numbers, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, And uh, because I'm like, you know, I got all this primary source material. I just can't imagine anyone's ever going to want a book of nothing but numbers. Uh, But I kind of want to get it out under the public eye. So I'm just putting it out on social media. And, and some people say that's delightful. Um, I have a podcast of my own called uh, Plot Points. It was about 200 episodes of in-depth role-playing game reviews. Then I had a kid. <laughs> and it is switched from from that, which was, you know, as you know, Uh, Mr. Barr Kirtley, if you're actually going to read the book and do your homework, that is way, way more difficult than just like reading a marketing sheet and talking to somebody. Hmm. Um, And again, that reading the book was our added value in the podcast and I've not had that time since I had a kid 18 months ago. So I have switched it up and we are mostly reading the first edition (laughs) Dungeon Master's Guide Aloud. It's me and a role-playing game academic named Scott Bruner. So we currently have done we've done we've done twenty four episodes and we're on like page twenty three of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Hmm. Um, people tell us they come for the digressions because um, again it just seems like we're a good pair to be to be going over that text. Okay, so you're you're sort of commenting on it as yeah. you're reading it. Yeah, yeah. It's not just an audio book. It's 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 the commentary, the midrash that really makes it valuable to people. <laughs> it seems. Um, and uh, other than that. I'd say those are the big things or follow me on, buy the book, follow me on social media. I got my podcast. Um, I I do. I am optimistic about a volume two, um, but it took me five years to write this one. So we'll see how long volume two takes. Yeah. Well, I'm
1: definitely uh, any more you can, you know, like I can never get enough Dungeons and Dragons history books. So, uh, and uh, yeah, I haven't read anything about the third edition era in terms of a book. So, That would be uh, unexplored territory.
0: Well, it, it, I, you know, I think to myself, the thing that really made this book good is people sending me all those documents, and I, I don't really have any from that area. But I'm kind of like, maybe I just need to start writing and hope. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if anyone if anyone listening has some uh, thoughts about third edition, you've been wanting to get off your chest. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, or, or, leak, or leak, leak all your in- to secret
0: documents to, to Ben. Yeah, or emails or sales numbers. Again, like the sales numbers would I feel like are probably the most necessary thing. Like you know how many players' handbooks were sold by the third edition. You know how many Dungeon Masters guides, so we can compare it. Um, and I've I've heard anecdotes, uh, but anecdote is not the same as a good document.
1: Yeah, well, no, I hope that all works out. And this book, is, it's a great read. It's really, really fun and definitely looking forward to, to anything you do going forward. Oh, you're singing my song, David. <laughs> um, all right, so why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Ben Riggs about his new book, Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons. So, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime you want me on, I will be here. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ben Riggs for joining us on the show. This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.